gosh, looking around here, it could be a thousand years ago. And the local says, yes, or it could be the future. I wanted to explore this problem of the massive influence that such an entity would have, that the entities like that in our world already have. Whoever controls information controls the world, particularly in a world that's based on democracy and on people making choices. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. This is episode three in our science fiction and storytelling series, where we talk with writers, creators, and authors who have a wealth of knowledge and experience in thinking about the future in unique ways. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Malka Older, humanitarian aid worker, faculty associate at Arizona State University's School for the Future of Innovation in Society, and author of the Sentinel Cycle series of novels. She'll be talking to us today about the creative process, effective world building, and incorporating real-world experiences into fictional writing. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Older, you've had a really intriguing background as you know, a humanitarian leader, um, but you're also a renowned science fiction author, and you're on the faculty for Arizona State University's School for the Future of Innovation Society. So could you tell our audience a little bit more about how you went from doing all this incredible humanitarian work to then writing extremely unique science fiction? Well, they're definitely related because I draw very much from the experiences that I had uh, traveling and living in places around the world when I think about how to build a story or, or the kinds of things that I'm really interested in talking about. And I, I do think that it's really useful to have a lot of experiences outside of your comfort zone and in very different contexts, uh, really for two reasons. One, to, to give yourself an idea of the possible. I mean, I think it's really when you're trying to come up with totally new ideas and think outside the box and get some exciting uh, new stories out there, it's really helpful to, to increase your range of normals that you've seen and increase the sort of variety of human behavior and fashion and food and architecture and everything um, that you've seen. So that's the, the one side of it is exposure to lots of different stuff. And the other side is being able to see your own place because it's very hard to notice the things that you take for granted until you've been someplace where they're very different. So for both of those reasons, you know, being able to have a career that allowed me to not just travel, but also spend significant amount of times in places that are very different from where I grew up, um, I think it's been really uh, foundational for writing science fiction. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, and I want to kind of hone in on that. So how do you think those experiences specifically have, have helped you approach your, your writing in science fiction? So you've worked in these impoverished and war-torn and disaster-ravaged areas. How do you then take that and, and filter it out into what you, what you do with your writing? Well, there are a couple of different aspects to that. Like I said, you know, part of it is the content of what I wanted to write about. And so particularly, well, I was going to say particularly with Infomocracy and the Sentinel Cycle, but also really with a lot of the, the shorter fiction that I've written and some of the serial fiction that I've written, you know, a lot of that comes from some of the things that I've seen in different places and the contrasts 
uh, I've seen from place to place, you know, and also beyond that kind of the, the emotional impact of moving around, of working in places that are uh, having problems of, of a lot of different kinds. Um, and, you know, I think it gives a really different perspective on things like what the future might look like. And, you know, there's a, there's a section in Null States, the sequel to Infomocracy that takes place in Darfur. And one of the characters who's, who's, uh, traveling, who's who's visiting the place, says to one of the local characters, gosh, looking around here, it could be a thousand years ago. And the local says, yes, or it could be the future. And that was definitely something that I was feeling living in a place where, um, you know, there was no grid electricity, there were no grid telecommunications, and most people got their water pumped and then delivered by donkey back. And, you know, being in a place where I was learning that I could, I could spend significant time there um, without a lot of the things that we take for granted uh, in the rest of the world made me think both about, you know, what the past might have been like, and also that this could be a, a possible future, depending on what we do. So that's the content part of it. And then the other part of it has to do with the world building side, because I was, you know, I had this experience over and over again of moving to new places, sometimes with very limited knowledge of what the place was like, just because I, I didn't always have a lot of lead time before I had to move. Sometimes it was, you know, oh, a disaster's happened. Can you go in a week? And so going to a, a totally new place and just learning by osmosis, just feeling like observing and noticing things and starting to puzzle them together and feeling that learning curve just like swoop up um, is such an exciting and engrossing and, and, and just wonderful feeling to me, like just the way that uh, your brain works when everything seems new to it and you're really trying hard to figure it out. Uh, I love that. And so I try to, you know, it's kind of in a, in a way the basis for the way that I do world building a lot is I do want readers to feel a little bit thrown in to something. And I want them to be doing a little bit of work in terms of figuring out what's going on and what's important and why people are acting in a certain way. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that definitely has, has had an influence as well in the way that I think about um, fiction and, and its role. So kind of um, getting back to your creative process and, and you talked about the approach to that via content and, and how you think about that, you have a pretty wide-ranging um, education from literature, you've worked in international relations and, and multi-level governance. How does that impact your creative process? Um, is that something that you consider as you're going through the, those experiences you've had working in those areas? Um, or is it, or is it more of a, a generic creative process? Well, I think that all of the the different things I've studied do have an impact on fundamentally on the way I think about the world. So, you know, when I studied literature in undergrad, a lot of it was um, literary criticism and sort of you know s- subtextual reading and and really taking texts apart, and that certainly affects the way that I um, read things or or interpret other kinds of texts like media and film. Um, so that's that's one part of it. International relations, and I studied economics as part of that degree as well. I mean, that definitely gives me a different view on the processes that I see going on in the world, um, and the way that I think about how different entities on the world stage interact. And then my PhD, which is in sociology and sociology of organizations. I mean, once again, that's another way of observing what's happening and and a bunch of different frameworks that I can put around what I'm seeing and think about what it means. Uh, and I think that those all really do feed into to my fiction, both the kinds of things that I pick up on as important and the kinds of frameworks that I can apply to them. So one of your better known works, uh, which you alluded to earlier, is the Sentinel Cycle series. 
Uh, Infomocracy was extremely interesting in how it approached the internet that was both interwoven throughout the world but not controlled per se by any governments. What inspired that idea and what parallels do you see in our real world future there? So there are a couple of different angles on the inspiration for that. One of them was actually an example that I saw during during one of my um, jobs as a as a disaster responder. It was I was responding to an earthquake in West Sumatra in 2009 and the UN had come out and it was the first time that I saw this, although they may have done it other places before then, but they brought out a person who is a dedicated information management officer. So that person's job was just to like stay in their main office and kind of collate all the information that everyone else was bringing in and mark things on the maps that they have and, and also make this available to everybody. So it was this interesting kind of outsourcing, you know, centralizing, but also with an idea of dispersion of really making it available to everybody of this, this thing that it was actually fundamental for all of us in, in trying to deal with the response, which was information. Um, and that, that really made an impact on me just in terms of thinking about the role of information and, and, and where it sits, right? But the other thing, you know, the flip of that really <laughs> um, was just looking at the way that media works in our world. And, you know, we live right now in most of us in societies with very fragmented media environments, right? There are we talk a lot now about bubbles um, and echo chambers, and none of that is actually new uh, because, you know, if you think back 50 years uh, in any major city and even minor cities, there would have been at least two daily newspapers that had very different perspectives. And you knew which newspaper a household subscribed to, you would have a pretty good idea of kind of their political leanings. Uh, so it's not, it's not entirely new, um, but it has certainly accelerated recently and it's become really, really dominant and important and pervasive in a way that a daily newspaper isn't so much. So we've got this, this fragmented media environment and we've also got this weird sort of idea about neutrality in the media. You know, we've got these taglines like fair and balanced. We've got these these ideas of sort of showing different viewpoints equally, uh, regardless of their their worth um, or their basis. And this idea of neutrality has become, I think, a, a real problem in that, first of all, it's impossible to actually be completely neutral. We're human. And before we get into it, computers and AI, at least up to this point, are all very, very influenced by their programming and the humans who contribute to them. And so they are generally not at all neutral either. Um, so it's, it's impossible, but because we kind of pretend that we're getting at it, then we miss, it obscures, you know, this talk about being balanced and this talk about neutrality obscures the huge influence that media has on the decisions that we make politically, Primarily, but also, you know, media is, is again, it's pretty pervasive in a, in a lot of different ways. And so when we make public health decisions, um, when we make decisions about our consumer choices and so on and so forth, we're really being influenced uh, in ways that are subtle and pernicious often. And so I was really interested in exploring that. Uh, I was interested in turning around the information environment and imagining what it would be like with a sort of adult in the information room, you know, with, with a, a source that people could mostly agree on that they mostly respected. And that would be very clear about when things were not known, but also provide as much backup data and also provide things in a way that was really accessible to people as much as possible. So it, it, a kind of idealized information management officer, I guess, uh, but also at the same time, you know, realizing that the idea of a single source was extremely dangerous, I wanted to explore this, this problem of the massive influence 
that such an entity would have, that the entities like that in our world already have. The, the title of the book is, is very clearly, you know, whoever controls information controls the world, particularly in a world that's based on democracy and on people making choices based on the information that they have. So I wanted to really point out, I think, you know, on the one hand, kind of reflect back an alternative to the media environment that we have and give people an idea for how that could be different. And at the same time, emphasize that even in a in a very different situation, even with an organization that meant well and had people who were who were sort of trained to be transparent and so forth, um, it was still going to have a huge amount of influence and it was still going to be a real player that was pretending not to be a player. I think that's such an excellent point. And reading the book, you know, I, I, I somewhat think of blockchain when you, when you talk about the way information was um, both centralized and dispersed. Um, and this idea that you couldn't just manipulate information, but I think I, I thought about a lot about um, you know your book as as I'm reading through Jane Mayer's Dark Money and this idea of like corporations being heavily involved in that and you talked a lot in your book about these these super corporations of sort being involved and then and then factions changing. Do you feel like that within your writing? Um, do you, are you sometimes surprised to see these things come to fruition? Um, or is this a, an expectation sometimes of what you expect to evolve in that ecosystem? Uh, it's a little bit of both. You know, when I was writing, I, when I started writing the book, I was a little stressed about, you know, predicting things and being proven wrong really early. It's part of the reason I set the book where I, I did in the future, that it's a little bit far in the future and there's some time um, before then, before I get proven wrong. Um, but at as I, as I was writing, I realized I needed to let go of that because, you know, it's, it's actually impossible to predict the future with any kind of certainty. You can get lucky and um, you can, you can be right about, you know, trends and so on, but it's, it's really not worth it to try and, and predict. And that's what, not what science fiction is, is really about. That's part of it, but that's, that's really not the main thing. The main thing that, that science fiction, I think generally is about, and what I really wanted to do with that book was talk about the present. Um, so mostly I'm talking about the present and trying to, to sort of reflect it back at the reader in a way that gives them new insight, um, perhaps because they at first think they're talking about something else. But writing something that's about the present, set in the future, you are going to kind of knock into to, to, to the real future because, well, it's, it's only been... Um, five years since my book came out, not quite even. Uh, and, and a lot of things have happened that people felt like uh, validated the book that, that they, they, they see the book is very prescient because of it. But, you know, that's only five years. And all of those things were very much building and very much in process. You know, if we talk about fake news, yeah, it kind of exploded in 2016, but it had exploded before, you know, it had existed before. I, I always bring up the swift boating incident of 2004, which was like such a major fake news story that affected the outcome of a presidential election, probably. Um, and it was so, so important that it became a verb. And then we kind of forgot about it and it happened all over again. So, you know, while there's there's some degree of, of hitting on these things. A lot of it is just like, if you're talking about the present and just imagining a, it a little bit forward, uh, you are gonna, you are gonna hit on a lot of things that are happening. So, I mean, some of them I'm a little bit surprised, uh, but mostly it's, you know, I, I, I kind of 
think that if you're paying attention and if you're looking at the way th- these things are going, they've really been a part of our world for a while. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You'll often hear, uh, especially Luke, um, sort of espouse that idea that um, we don't try to predict the future here at Mad Scientist either. And I forget who to attribute the, the quote to, Luke, but it's something like uh, point prediction is is a sucker's game, something along those lines. Um, and I also think it's an interesting concept because when we think about the future, we tend to think, you know, because we can't predict it, it's it's basically random. But but it really isn't. I mean, it's going to be based off decisions that we're making now. Uh, and and humans are very predictable. Um, so you can get kind of a range of that and you can look at what's happening now and then you can sort of extrapolate out. I want to talk about your work at ASU's School for the Future of Innovation and Society. How does science fiction shape your thinking about the future in that role? And does your future-related work there impact your writing or vice versa? Does that ever bleed in? So this is a really good follow-up to the previous question, actually, because um, one of the courses that I developed for SFIS and, and just taught is, I call it predictive fictions. And it's basically contrasting the sort of predictions of the future that we think of as nonfiction, even if we accept that they're not necessarily true or going to be correct all the time, contrasting that with science fiction and the way that these two very different approaches to to talking about the future and thinking about the future can complement each other. Um, so, you know, I we, we read sociology and ethnography about things like meteorological predictions, which, I mean, we all complain about how often the weather forecast is wrong, right? And yet we still think of it as this kind of very scientific, uh, very rigorous, really nonfiction version of the future. And, you know, what uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make with the, the course is that all of these predictions are, in fact, fiction, because nobody knows what the future is going to bring. And, you know, whether it's whether it'll rain tomorrow, or even (laughs) in an hour, or whether it's, you know, whether this big investment is going to make money or not, uh, whether it's who's going to win the next election, all of these things that we have built systems around predicting, and that people follow very intensely, what the stock market's going to do tomorrow, what technology is going to make it big in the next year, all of these things. I mean, they're really fictional. And when you look at them, when you look at the processes, there's a lot of guesswork that goes into all of them as there has to be. So, you know, I want to say that without discounting these things, because a lot of them do have some, some of them are very um, much built around promoting certain agendas, but some of them are, are they have their, uh, their science and their methodologies that have been tested over time, and they have, a, they have value to a certain extent, but they miss some things. And some of those things that they miss, um, doubt being one of them, but some of the other things that they miss are things that we can do uh, in interesting and different ways and useful ways in science fiction. Because in science fiction, we tend to think a lot about humans. And, you know, we try to make them into characters that are believable for people reading it so that we think really about how would this person really act in the circumstances. We think about unintended consequences. Uh, We think about emotions and families uh, and um, hope and dreams in ways that don't get covered in cost-benefit analyses um, or 50-year plans. And again, not totally discounting more uh, quantitative approaches. Um, I, I studied economics. I like quant stuff to a certain extent. But but if we only prioritize those, if we only privilege those as being in some way nonfiction or in some way scientific, we really are missing a huge part of, of the puzzle. And 
you know, that's, that, that's shown in a lot of examples <laughs> where these kinds of predictions have failed really badly. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to look at how we can combine both of them, how we can um, take science fiction seriously in a way, but also, also be rigorous about it, because obviously there's good science fiction and there's bad science fiction. When I talk about the importance of, you know, thinking about character and human reactions, we've all read books where the humans are just not believable. And those two are clearly either following an agenda or just lazy writing. So, you know, trying to think about it um, and take that role in how we as individuals and as a society uh, plan for the future and prepare for the future. Um, just thinking about how, how it can be approached as, as a part of that. I think that's such a great point and something um, uh, another sci-fi author we've talked to, Pete Singer's talked about useful uh, fiction. And so this, this almost blending of, um, yes, it is science fiction, but there's so much grounded in reality, um, but also extrapolating so that you get that combination of, as you said, more quantitative analysis um, that goes out into the actual human reaction and dy dynamics and exactly what you said, those, those kind of flat or two-dimensional characters that, that don't actually drive it. It makes it seem less realistic uh, if you don't have that, that actual human element. You know, people are listening who are, um, ha or have kids who are in um, high school and middle school, maybe even elementary school right now. What kind of advice would you give them um, in thinking about uh, writing and science fiction, um, about about working in humanitarian work? What kind of advice do you have uh, for those folks? So about writing, I would certainly say read a lot, observe a lot, and, and do try to get out of your comfort zone because I do think it's really important to have um, a different perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of writing is about empathy and is about being able to, to, to feel empathy for your characters, to really see all of your characters, even the very minor ones as human. Um, so that's, that's really important and getting out of your comfort zone so that you can be surprised and, um, and imagine different things than what you were always brought up to, to think of as, as real is, is super important. So we're gonna go ahead and uh, transition to our kind of what we call rapid fire, but please take your time. Um, this is what we ask all our guests to kind of get a better understanding and, and know them a little better. Um, the first question is, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Well, literally, my Kindle keeps me up at night because <laughs> it's awesome to be able to read in the dark and I do it far too long. More figuratively, uh, I mean, lately, I've been up a couple of nights thinking about handguns, which are a technology um, and a technology that has a big impact on society that we tend to think of as something inevitable, but it's really not. Uh, and that, you know, could be innovated on in different ways for safety that have been blocked in a lot of cases. And, you know, what the, what the social technology might be for dealing better with that. But yeah, that, that definitely, that definitely kept me up a couple of nights lately. Yeah. I think, I think it's an interesting um, aspect. And then there's, you know, growing threat vectors from, uh, 3D, uh, excuse me, 3D printed weapons and more. Oh gosh, yeah. Sure, there's lots of futuristic technology we can worry about, but there's also plenty of existing technology that is, you know, stuff that we should be grappling with. It was already keeping her up, Luke, and then you had to throw 3D printed guns out there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, although that's actually, I mean, it, it's in my book because, yeah, I was worried about it when I was writing that six years ago. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. 
And then um, what is something about you most people not, might not know that you're willing to share on the air? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of a tricky question, right? Um, I, I also don't know what most people don't know about me, but I will say that people tend to be surprised every so often when they realize that my brother is also a writer. Um, usually after we've been kind of throwing shade at each other on social media. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll play that forward and give him some promo. With that. <laughs> okay. So we'll bring your brother on the podcast next, right? You okay. should, you should. <laughs> Absolutely. And then finally, this kind of, this question kind of tells us a little bit about our guests and their viewpoint. Uh, what is your favorite movie? <laughs> so, Again, I, I kind of hate favorite questions because I always find it really hard to narrow things down to one and, and that one tends to change even if I can manage it. Um, so I don't know, I will throw out a movie that I, I thought of, the first movie I really loved that I thought of after I read this question, which is The Commitments. I am unfamiliar with that one. I'll be, I'll be honest right off the bat. Well, it's an old movie, uh, not super old, like, I don't know, maybe 20 years old, not like an old movie. Um, and it's about music. Okay. I'm going to have to look it up now because it sounds interesting. I like music. I like playing music. So this is something I'll have to look at. It's a fabulous movie. I think maybe part of the reason I was thinking about it, and here I will get in my own promo, but um, one of the, it was a very um, like indie, low, low budget movie when it was made, but one of the actors in it, um, Maria Doyle Kennedy, is more recently known for her role in Orphan Black, um, which is another favorite, not a movie, but a favorite video media of mine. And I was lucky enough to be asked to write um, a, a, a text and audio sequel with some other writers, some other fantastic writers for Serial Box. And we're about to go into season two of that. That's awesome. You know, honestly, uh, with, your, with your first response, when we have the Convergence producer meetings, which is Luke and I calling each other on the phone. Uh, we've talked about this question. Like the, the what's your favorite movie question is a setup. It's, you can never narrow it down to one question, but we, are, we steadfastly refuse to remove it from the rapid fire set. So it's here to stay. All right. Well, now you have a new movie to watch. This is the first for us, uh, a movie that we've neither seen nor, nor actually heard of. Oh, well, I'm really glad I'm giving it some play actually because it's it's a great i don't know i don't know where you would find it now um also a great soundtrack and uh and yeah it's it's a fun movie so uh malka where where can uh everybody follow you at um so i'm on twitter where i tend to be pretty pretty shouty and loud uh at m underscore older i do have a facebook author page that i try to update i have a wordpress page which is malkaolder.wordpress.com and you can find there a whole list of my publications with links to all the ones that are free online. And as I said, I, I do some writing for Serial Box. I have an Instagram account at Infomocracy, but I use it very infrequently because I don't actually let my phone be smart in any way that I can avoid. So that makes Instagram kind of tricky. <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you so much. I just really appreciate you coming on. Um, that was a pleasure. And sharing all these insights in part of, you know, the series that we're looking at. Um, I think your work has been incredible and really thank you for sharing all your thoughts with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. You have had um, some great questions. So yeah, thanks again. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Malka Older, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci 
And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.